Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. We have a fantastic class for you this evening. We're going to be diving into lost civilizations. This is our first, again, uh, live since uh, a few weeks ago because I was on the road out west. And uh, I know those that are listening in on the podcasts on Spotify, iHeartRadio and the like, and also on the syndicated shows, KGRA Radio and KPNL, you're listening to a recording, you're not actually getting it live, but uh, please go ahead and join us live, connecttheuniverseportal.com, become part of the discussion. You get the full presentation, all of the fantastic slides, video clips, we are doing some video tonight, and uh, there's so much content out there on the Connected Universe Portal site, so come check it out. And uh, and yeah, there's there's Nicole tagging everybody, there's Bill, and there's Facebook user, the mysterious Facebook user. All right, so we had a, uh, a number of uh, questions come in, because I always pose that weekly uh, question for the class, and so this one was, um, bring it up here real quick, What's one question you would love to have answered about lost civilizations? And so I got a, a lot of comments and questions about this one. I think people are really, really interested in this topic. And so that's Tom. Tom, click your uh, click your StreamYard setting. You've come up here before as Tom, so I'm not sure what's going on there. All right, so uh, first one here from Bill Prack. What is your theory on why the civilizations were abandoned in the first place? Why leave such a magnificent place in the first place? Well, I don't think they just up and abandon it. When we hear things like the Atlantis story, and we'll get into a bit of Atlantis here a little bit later, uh, you know, we hear about those, those cataclysms, whether it's the flood. Um, Atlantis was a place that, you know, they, after years of peace, had become a warring nation and then, you know, that was frowned upon and they were destroyed. Uh, but you hear about, you know, whether they're uh, part of the flood myth or uh, maybe there was some sort of meteor. Uh, there's even theories out there about uh, solar flares that, you know, destroyed these civilizations. People had to scatter, uh, you know, all these. Uh, and really when it comes to the flood story, uh, all of these cultures around the world for thousands and thousands of years had this story, they all did, that there was this massive flood, people had to scatter, they fled to these other lands and had to restart their civilization. So I don't really think they were abandoned. I think that they just had to survive because of uh, things that were out of their control. So we have a question here from Connie Mayanecki. Did anyone escape in any descendants quietly living somewhere, keeping their secret identity safe? And then she says, sorry, goofy question, but coffee is kicking in. Got my coffee right here, Connie. Um, yeah, there were survivors. And the survivors are the ones that passed down those stories. And we also see some elements of those survivors and clues along the way that they've left that we can go and point back to, oh, these are from that ancient civilization. It's, uh, you know, not really a uh, mainstream school of thought, which is the, which is the challenge here, uh, is trying to get past that. And it's, uh, you know, whether they're investigative journalists or, you know, kind of the, the rogue archaeologist, uh, you know, it, it's other people that are kind of putting these clues together. And it seems like everybody but Nicole and Bill are coming up as Facebook user. So... Uh, all of these, I'm going to post these up on the screen. If that's you, I guess you're going to have to reset your setting for, for some weird reason. I had weird things going on with, uh, with Facebook in the group anyways, our secret group out there. And again, for those listening in later, connect to universeportal.com. Come join us and hopefully we'll get these weird things straightened out. <laughs> so uh, we also had a comment from Patty Foister, who's not a part of the, uh, of the group, but asked the question, where is Atlantis? That's kind of the million dollar question, isn't it? Where is Atlantis? There are a lot of different theories um, you know, between uh, places in the Mediterranean, outside the Mediterranean. Um, you have Bermuda, like Bim Bimini Road. We'll talk a little bit about Bimini Road later. Uh, 
um, a lot of different locations. There's even uh, places out in the uh, the African desert that look like eccentric circles that people say, oh, maybe this is it. Spain is an idea. Uh, so a lot of different ideas as to where Atlantis is. And uh, the Azores, around the Azores area is another idea. Um, and each person that postulates their theory has a lot of good information and, and data to back it up. But it just doesn't quite seem yet like we've really secured, okay, this was it. This was Atlantis. Even though, this is what I'll say about Atlantis. We'll t we will talk a little bit more about Atlantis later. Is that it seems to be more of a worldwide culture. Like there may have been a capital city, but it wasn't just relegated to one city. It was like an entire culture that spread out across the world and had that like one capital, may have had some major cities and ports, things like that. Um, and I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> we'll get back to it. And then Victoria, why are they lost? Are they truly lost or is the information suppressed? So I kind of think it's both. So over the years, we have seen information get lost and get forgotten and then it's refound again and it's like oh okay you know here it is here's and we don't recognize that you know this was information we lost it's just like oh look what we discovered when when you do some additional digging you find out that oh we had already known this previously but nobody's willing to fess up uh to that part of it which is really interesting but i think there are things that are coming out now our research that's being done now that's being suppressed that there are things that are being discovered that are remaining hush hush we've talked a bit about this when it comes to egypt like there's a certain dialogue that's been established over like the last hundred years and they're sticking to it now you know that's what's in all of our our textbooks and uh, that's what's uh, you know been postulated in the the mainstream, and they're sticking to that right now. Uh, and all the other information that's coming out, they're they're keeping that down or calling the people uh, quack jobs or uh, pseudoscience. You know, pseudo scientists. That'll be a term thrown out there. So if they don't want your uh, idea uh, to gain any traction, it'll be like, oh, that's just pseudoscience. You know, you, but you look at things like, and we will bring it up here in a little bit, uh, like Robert Schock and John Anthony West with redating the Sphinx. And, you know, it was all called pseudoscience before. And, you know, fast forward 20 years, it's like, well, yeah, that pretty much, uh, yeah, the Sphinx is older. It's one of the, you know, arguments that was thrown out against it was like, well, you know, where, you know, a civilization didn't exist. And it was all hunter-gatherers. No one was building, uh, you know, Nobody was building things like this back at that time. And then all of a sudden, oh, oh Quebecly Tepe, hi, here we are. Yo, massive temple complex. So, which would have been around the same time that uh, Shock and uh, West were, orig were originally postulating. And now Shock is kind of admitting, well, that's what I said then to be conservative, but I actually think it's older. So, um, all right. So, yeah, apparently, uh, yeah, that fix needs to get into place. Uh, sorry for for you guys down there in the chat. Um, there's a there's a link somewhere. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, it's in okay the the post on the group. Uh, if you look at that, it does have a little link down there for for Streamyard. Click into that and it should set you up. So I'm sorry for those listening to the podcast later, but uh, and Sarah, yep, there you go. Gotcha. There you are. All right. So let's go ahead and get into it. Why are we going down the route of lost civilizations? You know, didn't I just have the Alaska book come out, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle? Shouldn't we be talking about the Alaska Triangle? Well, we kind of talked about the Alaska Triangle uh, quite a bit before I, I, I left. Um, you know, the the new show was out, which is still going. Alaska's uh, the Alaska Triangle, uh, season two, uh, but it but it is related anyway because in that book in the in the last chapter called other connections i actually start drawing other connections to lost civilizations 
And this came up in a conversation I was having with Dave Schrader on Darkness Radio yesterday. So that podcast will go up uh, tomorrow, Thursday, the, uh, the 21st. We recorded it yesterday. And in that conversation, uh, as we were talking about lost civilizations, we did talk about connections to Atlantis. We got into connections to Antarctica, which is where uh, this came into play. So I kind of have to thank Dave for, uh, for sharing this with me. Uh, this was uh, something... I'm not familiar with the site that uh, that he had referenced, and he sent me the link to it. And there's a lot of different information out there. You could call it pseudoscience, conspiracy theories, all that. And this was one of those photos from Antarctica that makes you kind of go, hmm, I wonder what that may be. It's, it's difficult to tell. I'll show you guys. Again, those listening to the syndicated show, join us, connectinguniverseportal.com. You'll be able to actually look at this. Those that follow me on uh, Facebook have... Uh, have seen this. So this is what looks like could be a wall in Antarctica. It's different than the one that uh, that somebody had posted a couple years ago. I think it was 2017. There was a supposed wall in Antarctica. This is a different one. Uh, and so you can see, again, the trick is that it seems like it's coming down out of the mountain. Uh, but it's very, very straight and linear. And it has, it looks like it has a, a fairly good sizable height to it. Um, the measurements that were done on it would be uh, you know, about 1,300 feet long, if this is a legitimate wall. And it's one of those that, even if it's a physical, geological feature, which, you know, again, nature in straight lines and right angles, it can happen. But not usually. I know a lot of people will say, well, nature doesn't make right angles and straight lines. And oh, I don't. Do I have any of the crystals here? I don't have any of the crystals on my desk. But you look at some of our like different crystals and it's like some of those are some of those are right angles and straight lines and things like that. So it can happen, but not usually. And so these are very, very interesting structures. And it makes you wonder about what is going on down there in Antarctica. Now, this is a very, very old, old place. Um, and you see strange things like, like this. This looks like a pyramid. This is also a, a photo from Antarctica. This is featured in uh, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, my new book. Um, and I bring it up for uh, illustrative purposes because people have used this photo when talking about uh, Alaska's Black Pyramid. Now, Alaska's Black Pyramid is supposed to be underground, and this is obviously an above-ground shot because you see all of the snow around it. But it looks like a perfect pyramid. It looks like this could be the Great Pyramid, but black in nature and a bunch of snow on it, and maybe a little bit more disheveled. But you see these perfect angles on it. It's, it's an amazing feature, which, yeah, could be geological in nature. Or did somebody build it? You know, Antarctica is one of these locations that's very, very shrouded in mystery. Uh, the ancient geological features and, and uh, natural features of it are buried under, in some places, miles and miles of snow and ice. And we have scientific teams that are going down there, joint venture uh, with the world, to go down there and research. Uh, and there's a lot of legitimate research about trying to discover things about uh, about our planet and our environment and things like that. But you think back to the 1940s, that's not what the Nazis were doing down there. You know, they had established bases down there. What were the Nazis doing down there? What were they searching for? And you hear a lot of these different interesting stories about, um, you know, UFO bases and things like that down there. I've, I've talked about the story with Albert K. Bender, and he believed that uh, extraterrestrials that had visited him and told him to stop researching UFOs, this is back in 1952, uh, had established a base down there and were harvesting resources. So you hear a lot of these different stories like that. Well, I'll take it even a step further and say that they were, that people are down there researching, not just for this, you know, natural phenomenon and, uh, you know, uh, natural uh, history of our planet. But I think they're actually looking for human historic evidence 
as well. So we look at, and, and here, I'll, I'll show you an example of how old some of this stuff is down here. So this looks like rock, but it's not. This is actually fossilized tree stumps from 280 million years ago. So it's basically become petrified wood. Uh, some of these trees actually grew to 65 to 130 uh, feet high. Now, keep in mind that 280 million years ago, Antarctica wasn't sitting on the South Pole like it is today. The, the land mass has moved, and it used to be part of a land mass called uh, Gondwana. Uh, just kind of interesting. There's a I, apparently when I was doing the research on this, there's there's a band that has named themselves Gondwana, uh, but basically it was this conglomeration of South America, Africa, Antarctica, Australia, and other you know, little parts um, of Europe and Asia. So like India is a part of it, and and all of that. And you know over the years it broke off and spread out. So at you know at some point all these different things were connected so you have uh, flora and fauna that are very similar between uh, the continents and they're finding these different things under uh, the ice in Antarctica now if you have humans moving about and they're going to say 280 million years ago humans weren't walking about that they've only been around for about 200,000 years well that's debatable because we're finding evidence that humans are human type uh, bipedal people who <laughs> are walking about and doing things much, much longer than 200,000 years ago. We're going to show one of those examples here later. But, um, you know, they're, they found in Southern California, uh, outside of San Diego, uh, evidence of human activity 130 million years ago or 100 I'm sorry 130,000 years ago so if you're saying humans just popped up 200,000 years ago and it would supposedly took them a really long time to get here to the Americas but somehow there's only like 70,000 years between the creation of humans and or the evolution of humans whichever way you want to look at it and them getting to Southern California eh, I don't know that's kind of stretching it so we're finding evidence that uh humans are much much older than we originally thought and we're not going to get into the all the ideas of you know was uh you know was the planet seeded and all that stuff we could really get into uh the rabbit hole down there um and yeah sarah uh you'd be interested in looking at human migration patterns yeah that's, that's really really interesting when you start looking at that and i did look at some of that uh when getting into my book uh Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, it does come into play when, um, like I got into that a lot when talking about the giants uh, and where they may have come from. So, you know, were they related to the Denisovans, which those, when you look at the idea of uh, humans and bipedal uh, entities or uh, creatures coming across the, the Bering Land Bridge, yeah, that did happen. Uh, but there are plenty of others that came here through other means. So the Denisovans may have come that way. But then you had uh, peoples that came perhaps from Australia and around the tip of South America and up. Did some learn how to craft boats and come across? Again, you're you're finding uh, some of these really, really old civilizations. You know, Southern California, like we mentioned, South America has a lot of these uh, these ancient peoples and we're discovering that there were there were peoples that are much much older than those that came from up north so there are ones from up north that did eventually come down um but there was ice, there were ice sheets in their way at the time that that blocked them and couldn't come down but there are other ones that came up from the south so it's really really interesting they're discovering more and more about this over the last really over the last 20, 30 years, because it used to be this whole Clovis first mentality. We're, we're not going to get into uh, to all of that. It's kind of like down a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, but they've basically debunked Clovis being first. Clovis, the Clovis civilizations did exist for a period of time, but there are plenty more before that as well. Um, all right. So 
was the wall on the pyramid from Tom? Was the wall on the pyramid? Oh, okay. Uh, no, there are two separate locations of Antarctica. And so, and that's fascinating in and of itself. So if those are actually human-made structures, then there may have been quite a large civilization on Antarctica. And since Antarctica would have been physically in a different spot on our planet, um, then you know, it would have been much warmer. They, I mean, shoot, they're finding, you know, tropical vegetation there so we know for a fact that it was it was certainly warmer at one point in time in antarctica uh so if there were uh humans on that land building structures then there could have been a pretty significant civilization there these could have been the people that actually knew how to make those huge megalithic structures like the great pyramid like the sphinx like the the trilithon at Baalbek. i mean structures that today uh we i mean the blocks we can't lift with with our current uh with our current technology were these the ones that knew how to do it and i think that's a lot of what they're looking for uh down there in antarctica is i think they're looking for that type of technology all right so as uh as we continue on um you know, when, we, when we're looking at something like this, like Gondwana, and thinking about how Antarctica would have moved, you have to keep in mind that uh, the Earth has evolved a lot uh, over the millennia. You know, it hasn't always looked as it did today. As we were, you know, talking about, hey, Antarctica was in a warmer spot. Um, oh, Michael... And I forgot to upload a couple of photos. When I start doing my show notes, sometimes I get so into what I'm writing and putting together for my notes that I actually start forgetting to uh, upload some of the uh, of the artwork. So give me a second here. It's a photo, so it's not going to take that long. Okay. So take a look at this illustration. This was just approximately 10 to 12,000 years ago, which really is not all that long. In fact, along with those animals, so you're seeing here mammoths, you're seeing wolves, you're seeing saber-toothed cats in here as well. There's camels, there are camels in this, uh, in this illustration. There are also humans cohabitating along with these creatures as well. In fact, they left footprints uh, in the mud there. And so we have evidence that humans were there at that time, uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago. This is essentially, you know, the end of, of the ice age here. Well, the last ice age. Only 10 to 12,000 years ago, and it now looks like this. In 10 to 12,000 years, which is not a very long period of time, it's turned into a desert. In fact, it's turned into white sands, which is where I was just at a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, in just that short amount of time, it basically turned from this, where you have water, you have vegetation, you have all these uh, animals, you have trees, uh, you know, beautiful uh, landscape, and it's now a desert like that. You think about it, 10 to 12,000 years ago, that's where we had, you know, there's Gobekli Tepe. You know, we had people building structures already back then. Civilization, as we know it today, uh, you know, was was kind of at its uh, beginnings again. Of course, there's the idea that the, the Sphinx was, was built at that time too. And in just that short period of time, again, we have this scene turn into this scene. So it does not take very long at all for our landscape to drastically, drastically change. Um, I mean, climate change is a real thing. Of course, you know, we, we're very concerned about, you know, the human influence on that right now. But nature does a really good job of that, too, um, where in short bursts of time, all of a sudden, you know, you have you have a desert. Uh, we see things like an earthquake happen in 
suddenly changes the landscape and now what was once a coastal town is now miles inland and things like this um you know it's it's like no joke you know shores get washed away uh you know uh cities end up underwater completely submerged uh that was a couple of things i wasn't quite able to get to with this presentation with some of the different underwater cities that they've discovered uh which are absolutely fascinating uh but but we see this all over the world where the landscape is drastically, drastically changed over all the time. So we have to keep these things in, in mind as we're trying to find these different lost civilizations that what we see today would have been different back then. So you'll have different types of people living in a location or a location that seems extremely inhospitable to us now would have been lush with grass and water uh, back at that time. So... We're going to stick with Antarctica for a little bit here because this is a location that's really started to uh, intrigue me. And we're going to take a look at, uh, a closer look at this map here. This is called the Perry Reese map. Um, and what's interesting about this map, now this is from uh, 1513, okay? And if you look at the bottom of this map, you see... Uh, that's the tip of South America there toward the uh, upper left center. And as you come down, you're still seeing uh, this coastal land. That's Antarctica. And you even see some of these illustrations within there of, of animals uh, that would have been there. So a recognition in 1513 that there was this land that was extremely far south. So what's fascinating about this is that Antarctica wasn't kind of quote-unquote discovered until 1820. Um, if you look at some of our uh, older maps, did I forget that one too, Michael? I think I did. If we look at some of our older maps, and let me find where, I, there it is, World Map 1718. We'll bring this up, and I just uploaded to the wrong place. So basically, if you look at some of our older world maps, like this one I'm about to show you, if I get it up here, uh, there we go. So this is from 1718, and you see at the uh, at the south here, there's nothing there. They At this point in time, they had forgotten. So this kind of harkens back to uh, Victoria's question, you know, why are they lost? Are they truly lost, or is the information suppressed? So I don't believe in 1718 there was anything suppressed about Antarctica. I think they had truly forgotten about it. Uh, and so it was not showing up on the maps. They didn't have explorers going down that far at that time. And so it just seriously got forgotten about. And so they uh, rediscovered it again in 1820. But it's interesting if you look at these older maps like this. If we go back to the Perry, the Perry Reese map, um, we see... We see Antarctica there. Now, how is this a part of a map if nobody was traveling there at that time? Well, let's give, it, let's give you a little uh, background here on Perry Reese. So Perry Reese, he was a Ottoman, Ottoman admiral and cartographer. Uh, this is really only about a third of the map. This is all that remains. is only about a third of it. But according to Mr. Reese, uh, these maps included, he basically uh, took a bunch of maps that were accessible to him at that time and put them together, got the information from them to create a, a world map. Um, they included eight Ptolemaic maps, an Arabic map of India, four newly drawn Portuguese maps from Sindh, and a map by Christopher Columbus of the Western Lands. So a lot of different types of maps. And in Reese's own words from inscription six on the document, I don't know which one is actually inscription six, uh, he said, by reducing all these maps to one scale, this final form was arrived at so that this map of these lands is regarded by seamen as accurate and as reliable as the accuracy and reliability of the seven seas on the aforesaid maps. So there are those that believe that he actually got a number of the sources of these maps from the uh, Library of Alexandria. 
uh, in this is based on his allusions uh, throughout the uh, the text that you see there on the maps to Alexander the Great uh, and Ptolemy the first who ruled Alexandria in the fourth century BC uh, who was also a Greek uh, oh and Claudius Ptolemy I'm sorry who's a geographer and cartographer uh, who lived in Alexandria at that time so it's to me, that's just fascinating. You're drawing these uh, connections back to the Great Library of Alexandria. But when we go back to, when we do go and look at the Great Library of Alexandria, now this is a location we've looked at before, knowing that it housed a lot of those old archaic texts, maps, things like this, that people were going there and drawing upon that wisdom and knowledge. Much of that was lost. So this is really a remnant of those uh, ancient cartographers, those ancient map makers that brought their knowledge to us. So somebody far long, long ago knew about Antarctica. They knew it was down there. How and why did they know it was down there? Another interesting, and we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> we will definitely come back to that. Another interesting thing about the Piri Reis map, uh, bring it back up again, look at the top left corner. There's this large, interesting island. I'm just going to briefly mention this one. We'll take a closer look at it here. And you see this interesting structure. It's on the left-hand side now as so we're looking at it, this orange island there. You see this interesting structure right down the middle. Not really sure what that is, but some believe it may actually be the, uh, the Bimini Road, which... Some people believe may have been Atlantis. There are those that have researched and said, no, it's just a natural geological feature. Maybe yes, maybe no, not really sure. But whichever it is, if it's man-made, if it's a natural geological feature, it may have been readily viewable and accessible by the ancient map makers. And that could be a possible illustration of it 500 years ago. 600 years ago, <laughs> actually. Um, of course, we don't know for sure, but that is one possible interpretation of it is, you know, do some of these ancient maps have remnants of those lost civilizations on there? I mean, again, whether it's a real, if it's a natural geological feature or it's man-made, somebody could have been walking around on that island thousands of years ago and there's one little shred of evidence that it did exist before and somebody took note of it. Now take, take a look at some of your comments here. Um, uh, Sarah Yusuf asking, underwater due to tectonic shifting? Um, possibly. I mean, that's that's one, uh, you know, one possible explanation. Of course, um, you have a lot of things ending up underwater now because of because uh, because of global warming, it's a natural phenomenon. It's actually uh, happening now. Uh, back during the ice age, um, you know, it was when it was much colder. The ice was up out of the water, so a lot more land was exposed. And as things have melted over the years, over the last ten thousand years, uh, the, the oceans have filled back up with more water. So you will find a lot of uh, ancient cities, uh, and there. I forget the name of it. There's one off the uh, the coast of India. It was a legendary city that for years and years and years people thought was just a legend, but they've actually discovered it now. And that's, that's the one that I forgot that I really wanted to cover. Um, Tom's asking, where's Nicole? Nicole's working on a bunch of stuff. She was here at the beginning uh, tagging everybody to make sure that you all got in here. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Another map. I know, we're... we're Taking a look at a lot of uh, maps tonight, well, at least a couple, uh, because it's giving us a physical representation, something that we're able to look at of uh, places from long ago that people are saying didn't exist, but yet we're seeing that representation drawn out. We'll, we'll take a look at some other stuff too, and it's not going to be all maps tonight, but I'm a guy, I like maps. So, <laughs> um, All right. So this one here, this is the Theater of the World map, uh, 1570, Abraham Ortelius. And you'll, you'll see here that there is a much larger representation here of, of Antarctica. Again, this is the 1500s, and we're still seeing it here. Uh, it's, he actually calls it here Terra Australis Incognita, or Unknown Land of the South. And you can see it kind of connects 
uh, Australia with other uh, southern uh, uh, land masses. Uh, but basically, it's it's where Antarctica is. And you can see like the tip there is very, very close to uh, South America, which you kind of really see here is kind of what the Piri Reese map depicts as well, uh, are those land masses very, very close to each other. So, you know, was it even something back then? Now, when you have that, kind of like Sarah was saying, the tectonic shifting of the plates, uh, if there's, you know, of course, continental drift, if there's earth crust displacement, that sort of thing has Antarctica at one point, did it drift south very very quickly uh at one point not sure but as we take a closer look at this particular map this is not just about like hey here's another depiction of antarctica uh in the 1500s but if we get closer that's you see kind of in the center there the uk uh you know england and ireland and then you see this island out there that says brazil so this is the supposed mythical Irish island known as High Brazil. Uh, some legends, it's supposed to be shrouded in myth, some legends state that it disappears and reappears every seven years. Um, it's a supposed to be a mythical island, but here it is depicted on a map in 1570. There's other maps that uh, it's also uh, depicted on. But this one is kind of nice and colorful and it's big and bright. And you can see it right there in the middle. Uh, what's interesting about this, a, a number of different things. So uh, the name of it, you know, that has its own lore behind it. Celtic folklore, uh, the island country, supposed to be taken from the name of Brizel, the high king of the world. Another theory states that it was named for uh, Brazil wood, which is has an extreme red color. Uh you know, it's, again, it has a lot of this legend and lore. Uh, both St. Berend and St. Brendan, you know, Irish saints, uh, said that they found the island on each of their respective voyages uh, and returned with nearly identical descriptions of High Brazil, which they dubbed the Promised Land. It's, you know, southwest of Ireland. So, guys, next summer when we go to Ireland, we're, we're going to be asking some questions about High Brazil. Because it's a, uh, you know, did it really exist? You know, let's, let's find out what Ireland is currently saying about this legendary island. I bet there's a number, a number of people that are going to say this thing was actually real. Because it wasn't that long ago that people were still saying that they could see the thing. So, um, go through, you know, some different uh, stories here. Expeditions from Bristol in 1480 and 1481. Uh, went searching for it. There was a letter written shortly after the return of John Cabot. John Cabot's a famous name. Uh, had an expedition. 1497 reported that the land uh, that he found had been discovered in the past by the men from Bristol who had found High Brazil. So Cabot, uh, 15 years after these other expeditions, are saying, hey, I found what they found. And it's High Brazil. It's the same place. Uh, fast forward a little bit. Uh, Captain John Nisbet of uh, Donegal, Ireland, uh, said that they found it. The fog came up on their ship, and when the fog subsided, boom, there was High Brazil right there. Uh, the last documented uh, sighting of High Brazil was in 1872, and author T.J. Westrop and several companions saw the island appear and then vanish. So that's kind of the whole vanishing island folklore. Um, some people have compared... High Brazil are drawn comparisons to Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the island of Numenor. Uh, what's, so Numenor is the island, if you go into the Lord of the Rings lore, is the island that was destroyed. So they draw comparisons to, uh, to High Brazil, also, of course, to Atlantis. Numenor is where, so those that have watched uh, Lord of the Rings... Aragorn's people, that's where they are originally from long, long ago. Um, if you read the Silmarillion, Numenor uh, has a very significant story in there to be told. And, a, you know, Dark Lord Sauron was up there in a, you know, in a tower and all that uh, fantastic stuff. But when uh, they talk about the 
you know, the the men of the men of lore in the extremely long ages and all that, that's where they were from, was from this island here. And if you look at where it's placed, so it's like Tolkien was certainly drawn from something. So from the Bay of Belfellis, which kind of sounds like Belfast, Ireland, um, you have Numenor to the southwest. You look at High Brazil and the depiction here, it is to the southwest of Ireland. So was Tolkien drawing from that? Perhaps. Um, he drew from a lot of legend and lore and mythology and worked that into his own mythology. So it, it may be. So I mentioned that there are uh, comparisons to, ta-da, Atlantis. <laughs> so we'll get to some Atlantis stuff here. Um, and there's and there's William. Thank you. Uh, ancient city of Durka. That's what I was looking for from India. Uh, ancient city of, of Durka, which is, uh, they found it under the water. Um, and, it's, and to me, that's um, it's so interesting when for years and years and years, people will say, you know, no, it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't exist. It's just a story. It's just a story. And then boom, they find it. And it's like, oh, well, I guess it wasn't just a story. Yeah. Um, what it, you know, most of this stuff is not just a story. There's, uh, there's there's truth behind it. Like, you know, the city of Troy for years and years and years, people are like, it's just a story, it's just a story until they actually found the city of Troy. You know, come on. Let's just, what we recognize here that within all these stories and the legends, there's a grain of truth, sometimes a lot more truth than the legends and lore. And then, yeah, a lot of times there's uh, certainly a lot of lore mixed in. And that's kind of the trick is trying to figure out um, you know, which is which, the degree of what's legend and what's the actual truth. So, all right, so Atlantis, here we go. Um, I won't get actually too, too deep into Atlantis because we have covered that a lot, especially when we did the Edfu texts uh, with, with our Egypt, uh, classes back during the summer. So for those of you listening later, of course, check out our Egypt coverage, connectuniverseportal.com. So those listening to Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, uh, KGRA Radio, KPNL, um, check out connectuniverseportal.com. Come join us here Wednesday nights, get the, get the whole, uh, presentation here. Um, so we have a lot of questions when it comes to Atlantis, you know, this was a pre-cataclysmic civilization. The concentric rings and all of that fun stuff. Um, was it destroyed by the flood? You know, the flood myth that seems to permeate all of our cultures. Was it some sort of other cataclysm? Which, uh, there are a couple of different ideas that have been postulated. Comic impact or massive, massive solar flare. Kind of depends on which camp you're in. But either one of those, comic impact or solar flare, could have caused the flood anyway. So um, it's it's kind of like one of those, okay, the result was the flood. Does it really matter so much which one caused it, the comet or the solar flares? It's kind of the same result. We know there was a cataclysm. You know, I think that's the thing is we know that there was a cataclysm that caused civilization for a long, long period of time to kind of fall away for people to, you know, forget what they had known you know when again we look at these large megalithic structures we don't know how to build those today it's like i mean we can look at it and be like okay you know they built it with these massive massive blocks we don't know how they moved those blocks that's the part that escapes us they had some sort of technology to be able to do that and we're and we're not giving them enough credit for it so one of the questions is, uh, you know, what happened to the survivors? You know, that was a, that was a question that came up uh, earlier. One of the uh, uh, pre-class questions, I think that was was that Connie? Yeah, Connie. Did anyone escape and descendants uh, living uh, quietly living somewhere? Um, yeah, we actually we see remnants of them kind of all over the place. It's just a matter of recognizing that okay, this was part of that culture. So uh, we've kind of covered some of this before when we did like stargates and portals and things like that. But with Atlantis, we see the concentric circles. And then we look at, um, these are just a couple of examples. I didn't even grab them all. Uh, we look at Sardinia, which used the uh, the circles and the swirls uh, within their artwork, within their architecture. 
you know, this looks like something, you know, if, if you think of like some of those cartoon depictions of Atlantis, um, you know, put this structure here, this, this castle and the, the surrounding architecture, put that underwater and you'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. That those are ruins of Atlantis. I mean, it looks exactly like something you'd see out of one of those cartoon movies. Um, you look at, you know, this is Newgrange. It's the same pattern that we see again. Now, um, you know, I, I've used this before again to talk about portals and stargates and all that. And I have postulated before that, um, and, and I love this this photo because this basically shows my my question. Um, you know, did Atlantis house a giant portal or stargate in that temple that was supposed to be in the center of the whole city? You know, and when we talk about the like the capital city of Atlantis, um, you know, is that what's being depicted here? when we talk about portals and stargates and they use that swirl uh, iconography for it. Um, now this one is, this one here is just a neat trick. Um, I, I can't remember where I saw this. It might've been Simka Yakovovich that had uh, brought this one up. But basically, if you take the concentric circles of Atlantis, and of course it had the waterway that went straight out into the sea, uh, and you cut that in half, you basically get a menorah. So are we even seeing in, you know, religious iconography, are we seeing those remnants of, of Atlantis, of, of the Atlantean culture uh, that may still be around? You know, going back to Sardinia, um, there are the legends of the, of giants there on Sardinia. Of course, we have giant legends that uh, permeate all throughout the world. So were, you know, were the Atlanteans a a giant race of people? That's another question to kind of dive into one of these days. So we are kind of drifting toward the uh, the latter part of our show. So there's uh, something I do want to get into here. So this goes into um, the Egypt trip. So when we're looking at you know, looking for remnants of pre-cataclysmic civilizations. You know, were there were there ties between Atlantis and Egypt? Was Egypt part of the Atlantean civilization? There are those that believe that you know the capital of Atlantis was there in Egypt, and that it they, they were the Atlanteans. Um, there are others that believe that well, Egypt was an outpost of it. There are others that say, well, and, and you see actually some of these accounts written in uh, in ancient scripts that uh, the, the Egyptians, as we know them, they didn't build the pyramids. They didn't build the ancient, ancient temples, that they found them and then they repurposed them. And then they built their own temples, you know, their dynastic temples and everything afterward. And so when we look at some of the, uh, the old architecture, when we get back into the, the original stuff, the oldest stuff, it's very, very different than the dynastic architecture. And so I have a video here from the Egypt tour. This is when we were at uh, the Valley Temple. So the Valley Temple, you think of it as the Sphinx Temple because it's sitting there right, you know, right in front of the Sphinx. Um, this is Mohammed kind of Mohammed Ibrahim kind of describing a few things. So this is what we call it the Valley Temple, giant blocks from limestone, which is a big question. Why this size? Why? Like a small block like this will be more than enough. Okay. I will tell you why inside. That is not the only question here or the only problem that from inside it was covered with big blocks of granite granites and also from outside but we don't see it because it was falling apart but here we can see some of it still attached this block one day was on the top of this building okay was upright like uh, what we call it like a, a cavetto design okay uh, for decoration so according to Christopher Dunn that the radius here and changing to the second radius, this cannot be done by any manual tool, even advanced tool. Advanced tool run by 
hand or hold by hand or by a, a, a manual uh, uh, technique, that is impossible. This must be done by a mechanical system. And that system run by a program or a computer to move from the radius here to here and where it took, like, it is impossible to make a straight cut by hand. But it is more impossible, if I can say this in English, to make a curve, perfect curve. And that curve is not perfect in one course only. No, it is perfect all the way down. So the same angle here is the same here. Every one millimeter is the same angle. We understand that the corners must be done from the same block of the right side or the left side. They never built one this and one that. No, they make the corner from one of the side stones. So if we talk about this one, to make this corner or edge here, they had to hack all the way to this level. Why? This is too much work for one block, okay? So just to make this design, they had to cut and, or to hack all the layer here till this place. So that is like too much if this is just a funeral place or a place for uh, visitors to come to worship the king at the clay. Okay, there's a lot of things to take away from, from that piece. And I didn't have a chance to clip out all the photos that I wanted from that. But when he was talking about that curved, uh, basically it was an accent piece that was... Um, that was at the top of the temple. I mean, you know, for us today, we could look at it as, you know, the crown molding around a, a, a room, um, you know, like a, a dining room or whatever. So, yeah, to do that perfectly by hand with the tools that um, that mainstream will say that they were using, that they were using copper tools at the time, there, there's no way that they could have done that, you know, perfectly with copper tools. For one, you can't even, you can't even carve granite with copper, for one. Um, looking at that, the the way to do it, like if I was going to you know try to create some crown molding out of um, a, a piece of wood, um, I would put that into a router using a couple of different router bits. And we're just talking wood. You would have to do this with with granite and these huge, massive blocks like that, um, which would be kind of insane. Uh, but you would you would basically use um, it, it would be like a diamond tip router bit on a huge massive scale to be able to cut that two different bits by the way to be able because you're talking about um two different radii uh and one is concentric and the other is um what's the the inverse of that <laughs> i'm forgetting my terms but basically um you know you have one that's that's inside and one that's outside so you would have uh the, the two different bits there that you'd have to use both would be diamond bit one would be because uh, one was larger than the other, so to be able to do that and then do that on these huge, massive stone blocks. So there was a technology that they had, is what I'm getting to. There's a technology that they had that they used back then that are not giving uh, these ancient peoples credit for. And they were not, they were not the dynastic Egyptians because the dynastic Egyptians weren't doing things like that. They were doing some amazing things on their own. They were still building these, you know, huge, massive uh temples and that makes you wonder man that's still you know pretty freaking amazing how they built those things and they put all the hieroglyphs up there and all that stuff but you know the ones that predated them uh that made you know built these huge huge stone structures on these blocks that and in in muhammad's point out some of these other things it's like why would you do this in such a way that you'd spend all this extra time to um to have to carve this out when you're supposedly, according to mainstream, using these very simplistic tools, it just doesn't even make any sense why you would spend that much time and power and you know manpower and all that to be able to do it. And then you see some other things that he didn't even uh, point out. But look down here to the uh, there, there's Mohammed pointing at the uh, at the granite wall. But if you look behind him, you know you have that that block there that's on the ground with this perfectly machined square hole in it you know I, it's just things like that absolutely amaze me um, and then 
I'm just going to show you like the interior of the Valley Temple just because it's a very cool looking temple. Um, the it's, it's it's all made of uh, granite on the interior. It's, it's interesting because there's um, there's a layer of limestone there as well, uh, which and there's a lot of theories as to why you have different layers of different types of stones. But uh, the part that I'm concerned with right now is this granite is so old that if you go and knock on it, there's, well, the interior of it's still hard. There's an exterior part of it that's actually getting brittle and could be the age of it. Mohammed would talk, will talk about, um, you know, microwaves and the use of, you know, power plants and things like that in ancient times and that the granite was actually affected by microwaves. I'm not going to dive so much into that theory but the granite has certainly been affected and you know just the age of it has drastically affected the actual physical structure of it um it's it's, it's very very bizarre when you go in there you try to knock on it and you're like it sounds kind of like a hollow sound even though it's a massive block several feet thick so um yeah very very strange stuff um all right and so Sarah's asking, yeah, could the ability or power be drawn from the Stargate? Yeah, absolutely. So, and and that's what um, a, a lot of the uh, material that we got into when we were there with with Muhammad and that we'll be getting into the next time we go does have to do with Stargate technology. So when these sites were harnessing that energy uh, and power to, to be able to, you know, activate these these Stargates that, you know, it would, it would be having a uh, uh, impact on the physical structure of these buildings so all right so we've got a few minutes left here i did want to point out uh one other thing as we get down toward the end let me uh hide that comment and then all right so this this one's very controversial and that is the london hammer um this was found in London, Texas, early 1930s. And what's strange about it, now it looks like it could be some sort of, of hammer from 1800s, 1700s, what, what have you. Um, but it's embedded in rock. Um, it's embedded in some very, very ancient rock. And the handle actually has some parts of it that are turning into coal. Now, if that's the case, that would date this human artifact back 400 to 500 million years because that's about how long it takes for a wood to start turning into coal. So people have you know been trying to debunk this one for years and years and years. And it, it is a, a controversial piece. Uh, those that are that try to debunk it will say, well, it could have been, you know, the the sediment could have been formed around the tool by soluble minerals. So, you know, they're kind of basically saying that, well, you know, maybe the material around it is that old, but, you know, it, it could have, uh, you know, it could have just molded around it. Yeah possibly you know more recently which is still kind of making you scratch your head you know but because the rock itself is supposed to be very very old uh, but even then if the handle is starting to turn to coal that doesn't explain that <laughs> it doesn't explain the handle starting to turn into coal whether or not you know your your soluble mineral uh theory flies how is the i don't believe it does how does the handle turning the coal part fit into all of that so where did this thing come from you know has, has it really been you know hanging around 400 500 million years and if humanity is only supposed to be 200,000 years and again probably a little bit older at least um how does that fit into the timeline it it doesn't uh this is one of those what we call out of place out of place artifacts and um you know is, is it is it one of those very, very scant remains of a civilization from long, long ago that has been lost to time. Now, they'll say that, uh, they'll point out that the proponents of, of this artifact will, will point out that this thing has not rusted since it was found 
in the 1930s. Detractors will say, well, if you take very, very good care of it, it's not going to rust. Okay. You know, so you have these two sides going back and forth, back and forth uh, on this item. Uh, but, it, but it's very, very interesting. Uh, to say the least, and uh, if it is real, it just throws a whole monkey wrench into the uh, into the dating of you know of the human species. You know, and again, that kind of makes us wonder. Well, if you know we were seeded from somewhere else or whatever, um, were these some of those you know you know original peoples? Were they tools from our progenitors? No idea. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, we'll come across some more artifacts here soon to, to help uh, to help the case. Uh, the problem is, is kind of like Victoria was uh, suggesting in her her question at the beginning of the show. You know, are they hiding things? And um, yeah, I think I think you're going to have uh, a number of factions right now that are going to uh, to hide a number of things, but as we go along. You know, the, the great thing is that we're able to, to ask these questions uh, these days and we're able to, you know, the internet's a great thing. There's a lot of bull crap on the internet, uh, but it, it helps to put a lot of information on our hands too so that we can take a look at different things and, and make our own assessment and do our own research and try to discover what the truth of the matter is. You know, for me, uh, the jury's still out on the London Hammer. I don't have enough information about it right now, uh, but it, it poses the question. Is it possible? And so, you know, I, I believe it is possible. And, uh, you know, we talked about, I had two different conversations yesterday, so I don't know if it came up with Mark yesterday or if it came up with, with Dave when I was uh, recording with Dave Schrader, that you have uh, private collectors getting into the mix. I, I think it was with Dave. And you have private collectors getting into the mix where when we were there in Egypt, when we were at the Temple of Dendara, which, you know, people know for the light bulb uh, down in, in one of the crypts, we were able to get, we were able to get into the other crypt that's open for the first time in like 20 years. And you're seeing on the walls, okay, all the different friezes and artwork and all that. And then all of a sudden there's these huge chunks that are just taken out. You know, they're gone, they're missing. It's like you're looking at, you know, the layout it's like, well, I'm not seeing pieces of it on the floor. Okay, they could have cleaned it up. But it's like, I'm looking at the hole that was made and I'm seeing the chisel marks that are still somewhat fresh. They're not ancient chisel marks, you know, because there's there's white in there. Um, it's like, th this is somewhat recent. So it's like, that's what they've been doing for the last 20 years. People have been coming in there and chiseling things out. Now, who would be doing that? And you kind of talk to, you know, some people on the side and kind of get a feel for what's going on. It's like, okay. So basically over the last 20 years, there were private collectors coming in, probably some bidding wars as to who is going to get this piece and who's going to buy that piece. And they're going to take the important elements out of there, the esoteric hidden knowledge they're going to take out and put into their own private collections. Over time, maybe not in our lifetimes, those pieces will eventually see the light of day, some of them. Many will remain hidden. Some will start seeing the light of day. It's going to take some time. Um, but we have issues like that that we have to deal with in the meantime that there are private collectors. And a lot of these private collectors think that, you know, having this this ancient knowledge uh, or this ancient artifact is going to give them some sort of power. Um, you know, there are, there are those that believe they're descended from the Anunnaki and they need to have these artifacts to increase their power. So you have a lot of that stuff going on too. And it sounds, sounds very sci-fi-ish, uh, very conspiracy, conspiracy theorish, uh, theory-ish, if that's a word. Um, but it happens. It's true. So, all right. I think that will about do it. Let me take a look at the chat here, uh, real quick. And, um... Uh, Tom and Sarah still down there. Bill uh, has been around and uh, appreciate everybody who uh, everybody else who joined because I know there were several of you in the uh, uh, the chat this evening. So appreciate everybody hanging around for Lost Civilizations, our uh, our first class back after the two week layoff, and uh, we'll get into some more of these esoteric topics as we go along. If you have not yet. Let's check out Alaska's Mysterious Triangle because the last chapter we do get into some of this stuff with the uh, other connections. Yeah, there are connections back to Alaska with this as well, if you can imagine that. Yeah, I, I draw 
connections to Alaska, Antarctica, Atlantis, all of that. It's not even that big of a chapter, but I do draw those those lines and get you asking the question. And as we go along in other in other works, other classes, other books, we'll get deeper into that subject. So, everybody, have a great night. Till next time.